0: Uh, thank you so much for coming, and thank you so much to the um, Institute for Palestine Studies um, and to all of you here for for inviting me. Um, this is a new project that I've just started to work on, um, and just to give you a very basic idea of my general ambition, um, it's to try to understand. The way in which the British mandate state and its bureaucracy and its procedures um, and its hierarchies of power um, excluded the Palestinians from, and particularly the Palestinian political leadership, from any possibility um, of um, claiming claiming their rights politically. So I'm I'm trying to build an argument that the structure itself. Um, made it impossible um, uh, that this was that the mandate state was ever a place of political possibility for the Palestinian leadership so this means that my my work is very detailed and I'm really going into the um, the fine details of how decisions were made what kind of procedures were used how those procedures were used by British colonial officials to um, block Palestinian rights. And on the contrary, how that system allowed the Zionist project to grow um, and um, to kind of work in tandem with it. And I'm starting with the Peel Commission because it's such an important moment. I'm going to read my paper because it's based on a, an article that um, I'm just about to submit, but I'll try not to make it too boring. Um, right. So 1936 to 1937, in my view, was the tipping point when the eventual end of the British mandate would more likely result in a Jewish state in Palestine than a Palestinian Arab state with a significant Jewish minority. In February and March of 1936, it became clear that attempts by by successive high commissioners in Palestine to establish a shared Jewish-Arab parliament had failed when both the House of Lords and the House of Commons attacked the idea in open debate. The hope had been that the parliament would represent the Arab majority and Jewish minority population of Palestine as a single united body in a single united territory. Palestinian leaders who had tried to persuade the British to establish such a parliament were shocked, betrayed and disillusioned by the strength of the opposition to the idea in the British parliament. Zionist leaders on the other hand were overjoyed because they had opposed a parliament given that the Jews remained a minority in Palestine in 1936 making up only 29% of the total population. By April 1936, the collapse of the Parliament idea, combined with increased Jewish immigration to Palestine, had created the conditions for the Palestinian revolt, which I know everyone in this room knows about, widespread revolt against British colonial rule and Jewish settlement. As we know, this revolt lasted until 1939 and led to the imprisonment or exile of most of the Palestinian leadership. In the middle of the revolt, and during a lull in the fighting, a British Royal Commission, later known as the Peel Commission, after its chairman, Lord Peel, visited Palestine. The final report of the Peel Commission was issued in July, 1937. It recommended the partition of Palestine into two states, one Arab and one Jewish. This is a really, I think, a crucial moment in British legislating. Um, in Palestine, because it's the first time that an official British body endorses the idea of a Jewish state in Palestine, rather than just a Jewish national home, which was a much weaker formulation. But even more importantly, and something that is really overlooked when people talk about the Peel Commission, is that it also recommended the end of the mandate. Um, So we can also see this moment as the beginning of the British actually wanting to leave. Things are getting difficult for the British by this point. Palestine is only one tiny piece of a huge imperial project. Um, It's costing a lot of money to suppress the revolt. And cynically and practically, British colonial officials are looking to the end and looking to try to leave. So that's why this is such a crucial, crucial moment. So I have a couple of maps for you here just to give you a sense of these partition maps because another reason why it's so important is that the Peel scheme, which you can see on the left here, was later used in 1947 by the UN body UNSCOP as the model for the big partition resolution of November 1947, which we know the result of. The Peel Commission's report also discussed the transfer of Palestinian Arabs from areas in the designated Jewish state to areas in the designated Arab state. So it's also prefigures the ethnic cleansing that takes place in 1948. It took 10 more years for the actual partition of Palestine to be realized through the 1948 war and the ethnic cleansing of 750,000 people. Um, but I think it's this moment when the Nakba becomes the most likely end um, to British occupation of Palestine. However, up until now, a crucial source has been missing from the archive that historians are able to draw on when researching the commission. In March 2017, the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office released thousands of files to the National Archive. Um, and this was part of a general release I don't know if anyone followed but in Britain there was a huge fuss about archives released around the uh, Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya Um, and this this source that I'm about to talk about was part of the same huge body of released um, documents Included in this set of releases were the transcripts of the testimony that the Peel Commission heard in secret from January to April, 1937. These transcripts are comprised of 531 dense pages. I have read all these pages extremely carefully. And this paper, which I'm also submitting as an article, is meant to provide scholars working on the history of Palestine with an overview of its contents. I also add some reflections on how the Secret Testimony helps us better understand this tipping point in the history of Palestine, and how specifically the seeds of the Nakba were first planted through the recommendation of partition. Reading the secret testimony also confirms my view that historians have not paid enough attention to the details of how the British bureaucratic state worked in Palestine. The story is not only found in individual policymakers, but in the system itself, and how individuals operated within this system. So this is a slide of the commissioners, um, and they're actually It's quite important to know who they are, um, because they had different opinions, different ambitions. Um, The Royal Commission arrived um, in the middle of November 1936. Lord Peel, who chaired the commission, had served as the Secretary of State for India. So he was very much an old-fashioned British imperialist trained in the Indian context. The other commissioners included two other senior colonial officials, Laurie Hammond um, and um, Maurice Carter. Both had served um, in India and Africa um, and had been involved in drawing partition lines in those contexts, those imperial um, contexts. There was a legal expert, a lawyer, who was the president of the industrial court, um, uh, and his name was Maurice Carter. And very importantly, there was an academic on the committee. He's standing um, second to the left. He's standing next to Lord Peel, who has the mustache, and his name was Reginald Copeland. He was a historian of Africa, a horrible imperialist historian of Africa. His books on Africa are very difficult to read today. Um, And um, he is the architect of partition. He writes the report. Um, And he is pushing all the way through the commission's proceedings. Um, So he's a very important figure. And then the other important figure is standing second to the left from the man on the far, sorry, to the left of the man on the far right. And his name is J.M. Martin. And he's the secretary to the commission. And I've understood through reading through this archive, he has an enormous amount of power. He decides who gets access and who doesn't get access to the commissioners. He decides whether Palestinians who submit testimony will be admitted or not. Have they followed the procedures correctly? Because there's an incredibly elaborate procedural system for giving testimony to this commission. So he's also an important figure. The commissioners stayed in the King David Hotel, but the majority of the testimony was heard in a British government building that had formerly been the Palace Hotel, built by the Mufti for the Pan-Islamic Conference in 1931, um, on Agron Street in the Mamilla District um, of today's West Jerusalem. It's now a Waldorf Astoria Astoria. Hotel. I went into it yesterday, actually, and was trying to look and see the Um, architecture of the rooms that I know from the Peel Commission totally changed changed. a bizarre experience Um, yeah it's an extremely expensive fancy hotel today Um, I just wanted to show you this photo because I think it's a very compelling photo and maybe somebody in the room can help me with this actually this is Lord Peel and Horace Rumbold, one of the other commissioners who was a diplomat and one of the more pro-Palestinian members of the commission exiting the hotel and you can see the the office of the Palestine Royal Commission i'm pretty sure that the man whose face is partly obscured is Jamal al-Husseini who was a, obviously a member of the Arab Higher Committee i'm not sure who the other man is i he's a, affiliated with the delegation um, to the Arab Higher Committee it could be Yaqub al-Hussein
1: I mean it me.
0: uh,
1: yeah, sure. okay
0: yeah. Amin Tamimi. Amin Tamimi. Thank you, Samir. <laughs> I'll just as quickly, write down. I've been checking and checking, cross-checking with photographs and. Um, thank you. We can talk a little bit about that afterwards. Um, but I like this photograph because it shows, it shows the the, kind of. Um, imbalance of power between the Palestinian delegation and the British, the way that the British are just walking out, looking straight ahead, and not even looking at um, the Palestinians in the doorway. So during the months that followed the arrival of the commission, it listened to hundreds of hours of testimony in public and in the secret sessions. So just to be clear, and again, this is why the details are very important, there were public sessions and secret sessions sometimes on the same day. The commissioners would hear public testimony in the morning and secret testimony in the afternoon after the tea break, the British tea break, which was always at exactly the same time um, every day. Um, And one of the things I've picked up on is that the Zionist leaders who gave testimony in the secret sessions often used the secret sessions as a way to refute or counter testimony that had been made in the public sessions. So there's a connection between the way these sessions are working. Procedurally speaking, the commission did not request of individuals that they give give testimony. So the British procedure was that you never asked anyone to give testimony, they had to come forward and request to give testimony. Anyone could apply as long as they abided by the application procedures and deadlines. The Arapah committee formed in April 1936 as we know was the as far as the British were concerned, was the official representative of the Palestinian people, they made it clear that they would not give public testimony to the commission unless there was a suspension of Jewish immigration, at least for the duration of the commission's visit to Palestine. The British government did not meet this demand, and the Arab Higher Committee boycotted the commission during its first few weeks in Palestine. In January 1937, however, the Arab Committee lifted their boycott after having been persuaded to do so by King Abdallah, Nuri Said, and of course Ibn Saud who played a crucial role in persuading the Arab Committee to lift the boycott. Members of the Arab Committee then gave public testimony to the commission. But the Palestinian leadership did not participate at all in the secret sessions although the procedures of the commission allowed them to apply to do so. By contrast, Zionist leaders and ordinary members of the Yeshuv gave copious testimony, both in the public sessions and, more importantly, in the secret sessions. British officials working for the Palestine government at all levels also gave both public and secret testimony, as did Britons living and working in Palestine, but not connected to government. the first page of the Secret Testimony, Palestine Royal Commission, Minutes of Evidence. It will be difficult for you to read the names, but there are many British names, but there are also listed there, Ben-Gurion, Ben-Svi, Arthur Ruppen, who had been director of the Jewish Agency, Moshe Shertok. Yes. Um Weitzman gives testimony, Chaim Weitzman gives testimony three times, lengthy testimony in the Secret session Sessions. So I just want to reflect for a moment on the absence of the Palestinian leadership from these sessions. So as I've said, they set out three clear conditions for their participation in the proceedings of the commission, and they were really trying to persuade the High Commissioner, Arthur Wokup, um to um, agree to these conditions. I mean, there's a concerted and very um, uh, detailed campaign going on behind the scenes Um, stopping Jewish immigration to Palestine, stopping the the sale of land to Jewish colonists, and establishing a parliament. As I've said, none of these demands was agreed to. Nevertheless, they they, they dropped their boycott in January 1937, and they gave public testimony. And the public testimony, which I've read very carefully, shows the Palestinian leadership doing what they could to make a convincing case for their rights as the indigenous inhabitants of the land. Their testimony was published in the Arabic press and later appeared in booklets that were distributed in Palestine and in other parts of the world. So that's the English testimony of George Antonius he gave he gave his testimony in English all the other members of the Arab High Committee gave their testimony in Arabic um, and it was actually quite well translated very well translated it is not too it's not a particularly orientalizing translation which you might expect to see in this period mm-hmm. This is from a pamphlet taken from Isat Darwaza's papers in Amman, and I'm interested in the way in which the public testimony was distributed in Arabic. That's actually Jamala Hussein's testimony. I just chose that page because of the drawings of the of the commissioners, which I thought were quite nice. But. Um, uh, it tells us something about the way in which the palestinian leadership were incredibly aware of the fact that their words in front of the british commissioners were going to be disseminated and distributed to their public uh, and that tells us a lot about their decision making so This public testimony was designed to inform the Palestinian people many of whom had paid a price for rebelling against British rule and suffered from brutal British counterinsurgency methods of what exactly their leadership was saying to the commissioners. The decision to give secret testimony was quite a different matter, particularly since the names of those who chose to give secret testimony were also published in the press. And this is something that behind the scenes the Palestinians were trying to stop. They kept saying to the British, why do you have to publish the names of people who give secret testimony in the, um, in the press? What is more, procedurally speaking, witnesses had to request to give testimony regardless of whether it was public or private. So if you wanted to give secret testimony, it would be known that you would ask to do so. The document itself contains a hint that some Palestinians and other leading Arab figures well understood the political price of their absence from the secret sessions because they tried to indicate to the commission that they might be able to give testimony if they were specifically requested to do so. For example, Francis Graham Brown, the Anglican Bishop of Jerusalem, who is one of the few British um, witnesses who's genuinely sympathetic to the Palestinian side testified to the commissioners that a group of Palestinian officials working for the government had approached him saying that if the commissioners requested it of them, they would be able to provide statistical information that would be different from what the commissioners have heard up until now. Because these Palestinian officials, led, I think, by Musa Alami, understood that the Zionists were providing all the statistics to the commissioners. And these were statistics that were hugely skewed in favor of Um, Zionist interests. Um, The commissioners denied the request on the basis of the procedural rule that they could not request evidence from people who had not, not come forward to give testimony. And then at the end of the public testimony of George Antonius, I know I don't need to explain who he is in this room, I would have to explain who he is in a room in Canada, but I don't need to explain that here. And... As we know, he was Lebanese, but actually, and I know he has a kind of discredited history, but what I see in the archive behind the scenes is an incredibly strong advocate with the British for the Palestinian cause. There's a very intriguing exchange at the end of his public testimony. Harold Morris, the lawyer on the commission, who has shown some sympathy in background meetings to the Palestinians, um, says to Antonius, I understand that after the tea break you wish to give evidence in private session. And Antonia says, I am prepared to do so certainly if you wish, but not unless you wish me to. I thought you were offering to, and I was gonna suggest we take your evidence in private at four o'clock, but if you particularly desire that it should be in public. And Antonia says, I would rather finish my evidence in public if it is all the same to you. And Morris says, it is not all the same to me but it shall be in public if you desire it. So this is happening in a public session. So Antonius is being put on the spot, basically, in this public session. Um, And the British insistence on these procedural mechanisms are basically shutting him out from the secret sessions. And some of the Brits, people like Copeland, who are very pro-Zionist, they know this. They know it, it's never said explicitly, but they know that procedure um, can have this effect. So Antonius's and others' reluctance to be seen as volunteering to speak behind closed doors shows how seriously the Palestinians took the public views of their actions. For some Palestinians, giving secret testimony to a British Royal Commission felt like undermining the solidarity of the revolt, a solidarity that was still strong in early 1937. Others feared the potential reprisals for breaking ranks by giving secret testimony, reprisals that might be directed by Haj or al-Husseini himself, or come from Palestinian rebel leaders operating in the countryside. I think it's very important to understand, and I know there are people in this room who understand this better than I do, that the Palestinian leadership were much more directly accountable to their public than the Zionist leaders were to the yeshuv. The yeshuv is not really a public. It's a kind of set of committees. But the Palestinian leadership are having to deal with a huge public and a huge public sphere. In 1937, there were roughly 1.1 million Palestinians but only 325,000 Jews living in Palestine. And as we know, the Palestinian public sphere in 1937 was alive with nationalist newspapers, rallies, strike committees, prisoner declarations, and rebel fighters. To choose to give secret testimony in this atmosphere was close to impossible. And I just wanted to show you an example. I'm not going to go into this in much depth because I don't have enough time. But. One of the aspects of the public sphere were the declarations that were coming out of Sarafan prison from many of the leading figures who had been mm-hmm. arrested, like Ajaj Nouahid and Akram Zaeita. Um, Auni Abdelhadi um, actually was also in prison at this time, so was Izzat Darwaza. Um, and this is just one example of a public statement um, that was made about comments Jamal al-Husseini made to the British press in the summer of 1936 where he basically said Um, to the British press don't worry about this revolt it's just led by ignorant people who don't understand politics Um, yeah and um, the letter is actually it's a beautiful letter and it's it's extremely respectful but it basically says this is an appalling way to characterize the sacrifices of um, of the of the revolutionaries this is from the Institute for Palestine Studies in um, in Beirut So this is the kind of thing that the leadership was um, dealing with. With this in mind, it's easy to understand why the Palestinian public testimony comes across as a series of almost ceremonial claims for national rights intended for public consumption rather than as a direct engagement with the commission on its own terms. Most of the Zionist testimony on the other hand, both public and secret, shows a well-rehearsed citation of the procedures of the commission and its terms of reference. In other words, the Zionists are speaking the language the commissioners want to hear. In the absence of Palestinian testimony to contradict the Zionist testimony in the secret sessions, discussions of development projects, political infrastructure, the judicial system, the flaws in the British system of administration rolled on relentlessly with Zionist leaders and British officials more and more talking like partners in a joint project. The way the testimony unfolded without the Palestinians reflected what was happening on the ground as Jewish immigration to Palestine increased and a Jewish state in the the waiting was being built. Edward Keith Roach, who was a very important British district commissioner, referred in his testimony to the accelerating speed of Zionist colonization. He hoped to slow things down by putting the brakes on development projects and immigration, and by reserving land as inalienably Arab. He wanted this not because he cared particularly about Palestinian rights. But because he felt that the Palestine, the British Palestine government, needed time to gather its breath to accurately assess. It needed a pause to assess what was happening. And when Keith Roach says this in the secret testimony, Lord Peel says to him, and it's a kind of, it really had an impact on me, this. Lord Peel says to him, So if we don't stop, otherwise we must go rolling on. And Keith Roach replied in the affirmative, yes, you have to roll on until one day you reach the the cataclysm. Mm -hmm. Of course, the close working relationship between Zionists and British officials that can be seen clearly in the discussions in the secret testimony had a long prehistory. Zionist leaders had been intimately involved in determining the terms of the mandate from the beginning, we know from the work of James Renton, Saha Honedi, John McTague, how closely Weitzman and Nahum Sokolow, for example, worked with British officials and politicians to draw the Balfour Declaration and the Articles of the Mandate for Palestine. And we know that Weitzman enjoyed access to the highest echelons of government in Britain. Another thing that's very interesting is that even before the Peel Commission leaves London, I looked at all the procedural files, you see. People haven't bothered with the procedural files because they think they're boring. (laughs) Um, But if you look in the procedural files, you can see that Weitzman and Arthur Lurie, the representative of the Jewish Agency in London, are intervening before the Commission's even left London in the terms of reference um, of the Commission. They also ensured that they had a say in other procedural aspects, including in which order witnesses would be heard and whether or not the testimony would include secret sessions. In dozens of National Archive files related to the procedures of the commission, there is no evidence that any Palestinian leader was consulted on any of the decisions concerning the terms of reference or the procedures of the commission. At the same time, it is clear from the secret testimony that many British officials involved in governing Palestine were aware of the imbalance between the Palestinians and the Zionists in terms of access to British government. And again, this is a, not an attempt to in any way exculpate the British. I. I've been reading this material and swearing at my computer screen screen regularly because some of the stuff that I'm reading is making me so angry. And most of the Brits are deeply cynical and I believe completely amoral. Um, But they care about appearing just. um, And they kind of believe that they're working within a just system. So they care about the fact that there's an imbalance. They see the imbalance, it worries them, it worries, it worries them in terms of how they will seem in the, for the international community. So throughout, throughout the secret testimony, the commissioners questioned British government officials on this imbalance, and the commissioners probed witnesses on the nature and extent of Zionist involvement in government decisions at the day-to-day level. Again, Edward Keith Roach, the British District Commissioner, argued that Zionist leaders were able to, in his words, always get in. And what he means is get into the kind of inner sanctum of British power, because there's a place where the Brits are talking to each other. Um, uh, They're always able to get in because they were too involved in the day-to-day details of British rule. He talks about Zionist interference in many different departments of government and the constant, in his word, detailed presentation of facts by Zionist officials. One of the commissioners then asks him, so what you're saying is that the Zionists have become almost another form of government? And Keith Roach replies, yes, it is very interesting to watch. By the end of his testimony, Keith Roach's solution was that the Jewish agency should be allowed to consult government only on questions of principle, and on no detail at all. Um, Said has written quite beautifully about this question of detail in After the Last Sky. um, And I think it's a a very important thing. Beyond the question of day-to-day governance, commissioners also expressed anxiety about the broader issue Mm -hmm. of who was actually doing the colonizing in Palestine. They didn't like the idea that the British government was reliant on Zionist institutions for its own colonial work. Mr. E Mills, the officer for migration and statistics, shocked the commissioners in both the public and the secret sessions with some of his statements. In these statements, Mills makes it clear that his majesty's government and I'm quoting, was not the colonizing power here. The Jewish people are the colonizing power, Mm -hmm. and in order to facilitate immigration, you must use such organs as they have for the purpose of colonizing. Mm -hmm. Mills said that he considered the Jewish national home to be fully established by that point in the mandate. And when asked by the commissioners whether it should be spelled out of the mandate that actually the British government is the colonizing power, He replied in the affirmative. He said, yes, we need to take a firmer grip. So there's a way in which I'm seeing something here, which is that the government is franchising the work of development projects and of the colonial project out to the various different Zionist institutions. The concern that Zionist institutions had become too closely involved in the day-to-day decision-making of the mandate government and that Zionist leaders enjoyed too much direct access to British officials did not itself stem from British worries about the rights of the Palestinians. In fact, commissioners blamed the Palestinian leadership for this state of affairs, frequently citing the fact that the Palestinians had made a grave error by refusing to participate in the elections for a legislative council in 1923. Instead what we see in the source is that commissioners are very concerned about the reputation of the British government as a competent and effective organization. So this is about British reputation. The commissioners were shocked by the fact that many of the British witnesses testified to their reliance on Zionist institutions for carrying out the work of governing in his testimony Mills again admitted that it was the Jewish agency and not the British government which did the work of determining who was given immigration permits. This of course is a hugely important thing the the granting of immigration permits. The British are not they don't have an office to to decide this they're just handing those decisions over to um, to the Jewish agency. And as Mills says it As he puts it, he said, it was a matter of convenience. Basically, it's easier for them. Arthur Wockup, the High Commissioner, also described how he relied on the Jewish Agency when deciding on the issuance of permits. Other witnesses admitted that many of the statistics used by the British government to assess the need for particular public works projects, in fact, came from Zionist institutions because the Palestine government did not have the resources to come up with its own statistics. Most development projects were also being carried out by Zionist businesses. Many of you will know the work of Jacob Norris. I think he's done excellent work on this. And he's shown how most development projects in Palestine during the mandate were carried out by Zionist institutions or Zionist individuals with British support, including, of course, the big development projects like building the electricity grid, extracting potash from the Dead Sea, and draining the swamps in the Hule Valley. Norris has shown that development was the engine that drew the mandate forward, and that development was the sphere in which Zionist leaders and British officials cooperated most closely. And he's also shown conversely that Palestinian attempts to win concessions from the British um, for these projects were being systematically denied. And in fact, Fuad Sabah, in the public testimony Um, and as you know, he was an economist, he actually gives beautiful public testimony, and he says to the British at the end of his testimony, go and look at your own concession files. There are so many bids from Palestinian businesses, and they're denied every single time. Um, So the commissioners ask, development is living and breathing in the secret testimony. And Zionist witnesses are bringing in detailed descriptions of development plans into the room, often with accompanying maps and diagrams. So they're coming in and they're saying things like, we've heard that you want to develop the Hule Valley. We've already got a plan for that. Um, And in fact, we can also pay for it. So you won't even have to pay for it. Um, We can just take that off your hands, but all you need to do is give us the permit. Zionists are never asking for rights. Um, they're they're basically deep into the kind of severe of, sphere of development with the British. The notion that the work of governing and developing the country was being franchised out to Zionist organizations really worried the British. There was a sense that there was a malaise, even a laziness at the heart of the British government in Palestine and that it was inefficient and too reliant on, on the Zionists. Towards the end of the secret sessions, terminating the mandate and imposing partition becomes a way of solving this problem. The British are always looking to solve problems. It's all kind of internal logic. So this brings us to the question of partition in the last part of my talk. How exactly did the Peel Commission arrive at the decision that partition was the only solution to what the British called the problem of Palestine? So, as I've said, the final public report of the Peel Commission, issued in July 1937, presented partition as the only viable solution to the conflict between Arabs and Jews in Palestine. So, this is the end of the moment, of the possible moment of the combined parliament, and the beginning of the moment where the British become attached to the idea of partition as a solution. Partition is cast as a sharp break with previous British attempts to pacify the Jews and the Palestinian Arabs and to convince them to live peacefully with one another. What the secret testimony helps us understand better is exactly how this idea of partition, which had been floating around in various ways since the late 1920s, came to be transformed just from conversations and background documents into policy. Partition was not in the terms of reference of the commission, and the commissioners did not ask questions about it in the public testimony at all. So they hadn't got a mandate to ask questions about partition. But in the secret testimony, they completely break with the terms of reference, and they question particular witnesses on what they think about partition as a solution. So Copeland will say things like, Um, Moving a little bit beyond the terms of reference here, and perhaps breaking a little bit with procedure, I'd like to ask you what you think about partition as a solution. Um, The secret testimony also shows us, contrary to the arguments offered by some scholars, that the Zionists were not the driving force behind the Peel Commission recommending partition. In fact, Weitzman says very tellingly, he is asked what he thinks about it, and they have a long back and forth, and he says it's too soon. We're not ready. We haven't got enough Dunhams in the fertile plain. Um, so there's a huge debate on the Zionist side, actually. A very, the Zionist side is extremely complex. Um, The secret testimony shows us that in fact, the Zionists are not the driving force behind the Peel Commission recommending partition. Rather, we need to pay attention to the role of the second level British bureaucrats. The people in the room sitting not on the podium, but hovering in the background. Ambitious young British men with big ideas, trying to impress their superiors. Um, This is a picture of the room. The one on the left is the opening ceremony um, and you can see, I think that's Lord Peel making the opening remarks. And then the one on the right is the only photograph I can find of an actual session. That's a public session, it's the public session of Weizmann. You can see Ben-Gurion's head with the grey hair in the left hand corner. So if you just look at this picture and you look at the kind of row in the front of people sitting looking at the podium, The kind of people I'm talking about who I think played an incredibly important role, and I know this isn't very glamorous, but it's how it worked, um, are sitting in that front row. We don't have photographs of these men because they weren't important enough to have official photographs. But there's one second-level British official named Andrew Harris. He served as officer for irrigation and development in the British government, and he could well be the back of one of those heads in the front row. Um, the secret testimony shows us but that by the time the Peel Commission was underway, Harris had begun working hard to support the drastic solution of partition. It was Harris, not the Zionist, who actually brought the detailed plans for partition into the room and who advocated for it most strongly. His command of on the ground facts, his technical training and expertise made his testimony particularly compelling. Here after all was a young ambitious British public servant undertaking the hard work of providing the commission with the evidence that was detailed and comprehensive enough to give the idea of partition the momentum needed to become policy. The commissioners interrogated Harris, harshly interrogated him on the details of partition with an intensity not present in any of the other discussions. In other words, it's during the final Harris testimony that partition is vetted, because according to the procedures, anything that's gonna become a serious policy needs to be vetted. The higher ups, the Secretary of State for the Colonies, is not gonna look at anything that hasn't been vetted at a lower level. Um, And again, this is why I'm really trying to understand (coughs) the fact that British colonial rule was a system with its own internal logic and for the men within that system to reach a point of decision there had to be a series of detailed steps um and trying to understand this system and how it came together with the British military because of course at the bottom of all of this is military power none of this means anything without British tanks and guns um The bureaucratic system and the tanks and the guns are working in tandem with one another, switching back and forth um, according to the need of the moment. So the commissioners launch straight into questioning Harris about partition in a manner that suggests careful advance preparation. They also refer to a lengthy document that Harris had pre-circulated. In addition, there are hints that substantive discussions have taken place in the room before, uh, before they, people had actually got into the room. And here is where we see Copeland, the academic on the commission, really prompting Harris. He keeps saying things like, in private conversations with you, I gather you formed views about, um, or maybe you have a map, and then Harris produces a map. And they have very, very detailed discussions about um, questions such as the status of Haifa, the linking of the Arab state to the Transjordanian state, whether the Jews would be allowed an army, whether that army would include aircraft, the status of ports and rivers and large orange groves, the future of the Rutenberg electricity works, how customs would work, how much the whole thing would cost, and so on. Harris also does something very clever. He's he's quite pro-Zionist, Harris, and he he does something very clever. He presents it as also being the best solution for the Arabs. He says, the Arabs won't accept anything except independence. This gives them independence. This gives them an independent state in the part of Palestine that they would be allotted under the partition plan. And Copeland says things to him like, but do we have any evidence that the Arabs would support this? And Harris says, well, at dinner the other day with the mayor of Jerusalem I brought the idea up and he seemed to think it was not a bad idea at all. Um, So that kind of informal um, stuff is brought into the room and that counts as the Arab um, position. and basically, Harris comes in with this very strong me- recommendation. He says, Personally, I can see no possibility of any peaceful settlement under the present system. Partition, and I quote, is a nettle, a thorn that has to be grasped. And the sooner it's grasped, the better. But most importantly, Harris also says that partition will solve the inefficiency and malaise at the heart of the British government in Palestine. Again, Copeland prompts him to expand. Copeland says, in private conversations with you, I gathered you have formed views about the over-centralization and inefficiency of the British government in this country, but that problem, like others, would be solved by this drastic proposal which you have put before us. And Harris replies, quite there would be no government to decentralize, no government to reform. Because of course partition, as I've said, means the end of the mandate. So the secret testimony shows that there was a strong, cynical and pragmatic reason for recommending partition for the British. It meant that the incompetent and over-centralized Palestine government did not have to be reformed because in Harris's view, there would be no government to reform. Um, So, as I said at the beginning, this is the first concrete sign that the British are looking to get out um, of something that was being mismanaged. And of course, it's only ten years later, in the spring of 1947, that the first British soldiers starting boarded ships for home. So just one minute of conclusion. A decisive moment in the Palestinians unfolding disaster was when the Peel Commission endorsed the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine by recommending partition. Of course partition didn't actually happen at that moment of 1937. The British White Paper of 1939 rejected partition and called for an Arab state to be established in all of Palestine after 10 years. But the fact that the Palestinian leadership was weakened by imprisonment and exile as a result of brutal British measures to suppress the revolt meant that they were not in a position to take up the opportunity in 1939 when British interests and Palestinian interests were suddenly aligned because of looming war in Europe. In addition, any trust and confidence that the Palestinian leadership might once have had in British commitments was completely gone by 1939. In short, the White Paper came too late. What followed was in effect an absence of British policy. The British stuck to the White Paper because it was the most recent policy position on Palestine and because British officials believed that it served to appease the Muslim population in India. But the idea of partition and the partition maps were there, always in the background. And in early 1947, the British announced they were washing their hands of the Palestine problem and handing it over to the newly formed United Nations. And we know that the map that came out of that, as we've said, was based on the Peel um, map. Following that vote, war broke out in Palestine and the fight for partition moved from the halls of the UN to the battlefield. It had been just 10 years since the Peel Commission first recommended partition, yet so much had changed. The fact of the Holocaust gave intensity to the Zionist cause and provoked even greater sympathy for Zionism in Europe and America. In addition, America had begun to replace Britain as the great power in the Middle East. Given that partition happened anyway and that British colonial power and historical conditions in Europe were so stacked against the Palestinians, why should we care about the microscopic details of who said what to whom during the secret sessions of the Peel Commission? A more macroscopic approach would argue that the broader historical forces at work make the details of how power was actually exercised at a particular moment and in a particular place, like the Peel Commission secret sessions, trivial or unimportant by comparison. But I would argue that you cannot truly understand how power works without paying close attention to the details of exactly how and why decisions were made by those who wielded enormous power. By constructing a detailed narrative of how these crucial decisions crystallize, we shine a light down into the depths of power.
2: Thank you very much, this is beyond great thank you thank you uh, Professor Parsons. uh we will have some discussion and uh, we'll take some questions uh, i just have one uh, i'll take uh, the privilege of conducting the discussion here uh, on, on the p on the white paper of 1939 mm. uh, and in the uh you know, one of the items was uh, the land issue. Yeah. Um, and actually, the land market that was was set up, uh, the, the regulations for land transfer, basically uh, asserted the partition map. So this strengthens your uh, uh, your your uh, conclusion. Actually, I didn't. I didn't know that. I haven't yeah, read absolutely. the white paper carefully for a no, long yes. time. yes. Uh, and it's not about Arab state. It's about it was about Arab Jewish government. Yes. So it's basically the same idea. Uh, yes. Which you said, was the legitimate. legislation the, the parliament yes. was reinstated in the white paper but it seems that that this was a tactic for um, calming things down yes. and helping control the population but the the land issue and Harris comes from that to yes, uh, is, is continues to be uh, to, the, the logic of it is is completely different uh, so uh, so there is that, uh, and also the dynamics that you were talking about in terms of uh, the, the so you use the term or some of them use the term of getting in into yes. the British uh, yes. uh, working government. You can see this also in the concrete, in the micro details of, of, of small cases here and there of, uh, of uh, struggles around land yes. and issues. That. You can see the influence. You can see the, this pattern of dynamics, uh, not only in the di- in the procedures of the the work of the Commission but also actually the, the, the we can document this in the actual work of government yes in the British
0: that's Arthur. so the land yeah thing is so important which is why your you yeah, yeah. your work is I mean to when show it, that at the it, level of it, detail this,
2: this was illuminating thank you very much and uh, we'll take uh, the, take some questions from the audience <laughs>
3: I was reading, reading
2: the.
3: I uh, you. I read the testimonies made by the artists. Yes. My name is Walid Salim, so yes. and I'm doing research about that. Yes. Uh, the, the testimonies were published by Dr. Yahya uh, Jaber. From Najah University, did you saw them? This is this is kind of another resource. Yes,
0: I and, think I I, I will check.
3: Published by Doctor Hisham Abou so he was the man who who <clears throat> published them. So he was speaking about uh, when he uh, looked to the testimony made by Jamal Hussein. Yes. Uh, the other one by Awni Yes. You will see both of them are talking about mandate over the mandate. So the British mandate is the yes. you know, is doing the practical work. Yes. While the decisions are made by Zionists. Yes. So the so, mandate over the so mandate confirms what, yes. what you said. So yes. Yeah, yeah, and
0: no, they are. And actually. Yes,
3: right. So that's it. This is my
0: I would love to talk to you more about your your work on that public testimony. It's very interesting the public testimony, isn't it? Yes. And actually they're really you can see that they see exactly the way the British have yeah. Manipulated things. Read
3: read Dawuni Hadi for instance, yeah. testimony. his
0: testimony is you great. You will
3: see how much it is something extraordinary. How he presented the uh, the question of the mandate over the mandate yes. and the role of Zionist movement.
0: I will I will yeah. read that more carefully. Can I ask you? Do you know anything about the trans? The translator is is that is it Tanous? Because the
3: uh, I have no idea, but the testimonies were published in An-Nafir.
0: That's right. I have that. I have but. the testimonies in An-Nafir.
3: Zakkara. In- nafir An-Nafir. <laughs> Yes, okay. and Doctor Ehe Jabber published them. Yeah. They shall melee. Yeah. Then But
0: what I'm interested in is that the that the testimony was given in Arabic mm-hmm. but the translator is obviously mm-hmm. playing quite an important role I because I have no idea. Because the yeah. English because I've read both the Arabic and the English yes. and the English public testimony, it actually reads beautifully and very convincingly in English. And I'm, I'm curious about the role of the translator. Um, because it could be a completely distancing, orientalizing translation. I would check it. Yeah. The
1: translator is yeah. Ibrahim Kaibni. Ibrahim Kaibni. 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 Yeah, okay. From Ramallah. Yeah. And he yeah. was the uh, head of the translation circle. Okay. Okay. And the first uh, Arabic text published was by Muhammad Shukhari, the uh, brother of Sheik Hasad Shukari. Yeah. It was published in
0: 1937.
1: In Is in that Palestine.
0: the one in Nafir? No. 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 Um, in, in a textbook. In a textbook.
1: Mm. How interesting. Dr. Yeah. Yeah. did, I don't know, yeah. if he did another translation. Or, but the yeah. first translation was published because the testimonies were in Arabic.
0: Yes, it, except for George Antonius. Yes. And Ibrahim was the one who, that's very interesting, because that's also a dynamic in the room, of course. If you imagine um, Aumi Abdelherdi and Jamal Husseini and Fouad Sabah all talking Arabic in the room, yep. and it being translated also, that, that the kind of dynamic that that would have set up.
1: Was it simultaneous translation?
0: I, it was simultaneous translation, yes. And it reads the Well, the, the <coughs> published British, thank you so much. The, the published British versions of the testimony just read as a Q&A transcript. So it's been later kind of compiled. But it was, yes, it was simultaneous translation. Because occasionally the British commissioners refer to the translator and say things like, you know, um, I'm not sure that the translator seems to have added sentences here. So I feel like the translator is also quite an important figure. Yes, you know. I'm working fairly probably closely with the Arabic Committee and, but this is extremely helpful. Did the transcript have mentioned who the translator is? It says um, it does say at the top of some of them, um, and I think it is Ibrahim kabani Um Keibni, but Keibni, yeah. I, w- I could, if I if I could go to my sources, I'd be able to find it. Um, but I can't remember the name that is cited occasionally in the in the transcripts. It's not always there. But I don't think it is that name. But anyway, I'll...
4: I'll Open check. Uh, well, I read the Peel uh, Commission's report. And you one notice you can see the, what I say, discriminatory uh, description of Jews and Arabs. Yes. You see it very clearly. Yes, absolutely. How the discrimination. One sentence that uh, I took notice, there is one sentence calling that the Arab needs mental training <laughs> Yeah, there's
0: so much of this, yeah Mental training Yes,
4: to absorb the experiences yes. and there is another sentence that reads like this at this partition will uh, solve this big problem of Jews in Europe, Mm -hmm. and the Jews and the whole world, the Western world, will thank the Palestinians (coughs) if they help in this solution of the problem. The sentence was put there. Yes. So by this, I mean...
0: Yeah.
4: I mean, even, let's say, all the Palestinians went and put witnesses and gave them the Zionist movement was in tandem with the within the British imperial yes. uh, strategic yes. movement yes yes because uh, yes it was in tandem, tandem was is in a very tandem. good way to
0: put so it so the
4: Zionist uh, leaders were working within that uh, uh, order within taking advantage absolutely of, uh, so the, this, yeah, they were working. Not outside the box. Yes. they were. They
0: were, in, they were inside the box. Outside the box. But they were. Thank you. I agree. But agreed. they took very
4: good uh, advantage of it. They did. Very good advantage. And some of our leaders, they did not understand. It seems what was as usual, I and mean, what was. But that's
0: partly because I think that you you hit on some absolutely key questions. First of all, the question of the racism yes. in the report and also in The Secret Sessions. It is full of 1930s British imperial racism and one of the things that I've written about in the article which I didn't have time to go in here is that it's also full of a very nasty anti-semitism towards the Jews particularly when Uh, the Brits are talking with each other alone and one of the things I'm trying to understand is how the anti-semitism and the anti-Arab racism are working differently Because the anti-Arab racism racism is very paternalistic. In fact, the Brits like the Arabs more than they like the Jews. That comes up quite clearly, but it's a kind of paternalistic liking. And I think that's incredibly dangerous and disempowers the Palestinians even more. The don't particularly, I mean I'm talking in general terms, there's a lot of hostility towards the Jews a lot of nasty anti-Semitism but it doesn't stop them working with them Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something that I think it's very important to open up because a lot of scholarship on the Israeli right claims that because some of the Brits were anti-Semitic they were not working with the Jews, but in fact the two were able to sit side by side, you have these anti-Semitic British officials who are you know that those kind of vague racist feelings which they express to each other around the dinner table they're not really being brought into the room when they're discussing a development project or mapping a land sale sure. um, but because of the paternalism the Palestinians are never let in the room to discuss the development project because they're not considered to be capable partners I mean I'm talking in general terms there are some British who do of course you know, there is respect, and those people stand out, I can tell you.
4: No, because I have a question. But before that, oh. uh, reminded me, there is a book uh, uh, written by the uh, head, uh, head of office of ben Yeah. He was a practical one. Yeah. And he said this sentence. How did we uh, formalize our strategy? No, I'm sorry, not uh, Ben-Gurion, Herzl. Herzl,
0: yeah. Sorry.
4: This man was his secretary. Okay. And they said this is how we formalized, practical, very practical. Yeah. He said we will not go to the Europeans and uh, we will shout, crying, you are discriminating anti-Semites and you are uh, very cruel to No, he said, why? We will not uh, let them change we, will, we cannot change that. Yeah. we cannot change that. Yeah. So what we do, we tell them, okay, you hate us, you don't want us, okay, take, get, rid of us. get rid of us. Yeah. This is how their strategy Yes,
0: they, used that, they did use that strategy, yeah. So this
4: is why you find even from the far-right Americans, yeah. now they have contacts or very good contacts with the right Israeli government officers.
0: Yes, absolutely.
4: Absolutely. It is not a strange. Uh, no. Uh, it's okay. not the the first time. No. It's My question, but it, maybe it's not connected to me. At that time, all the most of the Arab countries were under British rule. Yes. And they obeyed everything. Most yes. In no. 1950, almost. Yeah. The Iraqis Just, had
0: a in major 19, revolt. No, 1915.
4: I am talking about the uh Ali McMahon yeah okay yeah
0: the Hussein MacMahon So why did the
4: Imperial British had to go to the Jews to support the place in Palestine mm. but even the Arabs at that time were, Accepting everything, but oh. why did they have to go there and bring the Jews to support their
2: interests here, <laughs> or to their uh, 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 own? I'll take i take a few questions. Okay, okay. that's a, okay. a huge question. Okay. it I'm takes us. So we can, it's a good question. It's a fact. back to... Mr. been. So we've been. So we've been. So we've been. So
1: Right. okay. Three. Okay, my question uh, concerning there was he claimed that the uh, Palestinian revolution in its second phase yeah. was the main reason for the elimination of the partition plan. Uh-huh. It didn't work because the Palestinians yeah. revolted and costed uh, the British mm. loss. <laughs>
0: yeah. Is that true? It's a good question. I'm not sure I can answer it. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay.
1: Mr. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to make a comment how alarmingly similar it is to how the US now has yeah. replaced the British. And yes. Intervened in the terms of reference of the negotiations. Yes. And the whole thing is exactly, and hate the, have anti-Semitism and yet use the. Yes. Uh, it's, all, it's all,
0: it's I know, so it's so a very par- similar, it's a it's very similar. parallel. I know, it's very, very parallel. I
2: should
0: should just say, I have a student here, Jeanette Grevin, who did her PhD at McGill. She's just finished a wonderful dissertation, very detailed dissertation, on the negotiations between um, the Americans, the Israelis, and the Palestinians from 2008 up to, starts in 2008, right? Up to. The war on terror. Yeah, and and the way that the kind of global war on terror. quotation marks kind of collapses these um, strategic alliances and she shows exactly what you're talking about in that dissertation so Dr. Saleh
2: Hi
0: Saleh I could see you I didn't recognize you I've got my <laughs> eyes aren't very good how are you?
4: I'm good Okay uh, th- thank you for uh, this illuminating and really fascinating lecture um my question is about historiography. I mean, even with these interesting and unknown information, mm, mm-hmm. I mean, couldn't we knew the fact? I mean, uh, it's a continuous uh, of the question of gen what's
3: okay. I mean,
4: our fate was, sealed if you want i mean we don't have to enter do we have really to enter on all these information or details to enter that this was the case and this is the case today and this is the case the west i mean colonial west with us even in the future I mean, yeah, this is my question
0: yeah that's a very good question i struggle with that because i'm Obviously, doing this project, I. I we'll, give you, we'll give you five minutes to answer. Okay. Um, I'll start backwards then. I'll start with the last question and um, go backwards. And you know, the, this question of does it matter and why should we care? I think that power is never completely sealed. I think that what can be important about this project is to open up the possibility that occasionally we will see a crack in power or rather that to put it more clearly um, the Palestinians like many other colonized people were definitely hugely disempowered right Um, compared to the Zionist there's no question about that but They were hugely disempowered vis-a-vis the British. But very occasionally, when you have a very big, powerful unit, the interests of that unit might suddenly align with the interests of the weaker party. Not because the powerful unit cares about the weaker party or cares about the rights of the weaker party, but because it's in the interests of that powerful unit to suddenly work with that weaker party. If that weaker party has never participated in the process this is just one argument it's not there as a potential ally there's nothing to turn to i think i mean and uh, you know again i'm not sure if i really believe this this is kind of one stream in my mind that when the british wanted to get out they didn't really care who they handed it to i think that if the palestinians had worked closely within the system, had built up the kind of institutions that the Jews built up, that the British might have felt that this was something that could be handed over to the Palestinians. But the Zionists were there with all their government departments and all their histadrus, and and it becomes an easy move. So I. I'm not saying that I think that the Palestinians should have participated because you could also make the counter-argument that whatever they did it wouldn't have made any difference but I think there is always a contingency and I think that there are occasionally cracks in power and that being ready to step into those cracks is one strategy. Now, having said that, it's an impossible strategy to actually implement, because how can you say to a people who is suffering under oppressive colonial rule, you know, just keep keep going, keep cooperating, wait, be patient. The moment might come when suddenly this alignment happens, and suddenly we're in the room.
1: India uh, is an
0: example. India is an example. India is a very good example. The British handed it over to Nehru so, and to the, the Indian seen Congress. Seen. But, well, yeah, but they, the they Indians, is, the Indians did not have a settler colony, a white settler colony, yeah, course, in its, it's midst. But so the Palestinians were up against such difficult odds. And I hate the discourse of the Palestinians missing opportunities. I can't stand that phrase because I don't think the opportunities were really there. But I think intellectually and historiographically, just to say the power was absolute, there's no point looking at these things in detail, there was nothing that could be done, I think that absolves, it somehow absolves us of the responsibility to maybe think about the moments where something could have happened differently. I, I, I feel as, an, you know, as a historian that there is some worth in that and by shining this light onto how this power is working. The other thing is understanding the depth of this power. The fact that the Palestinians weren't often in the room working with the British. I see in the memoirs, by own, even though they're, they're wonderful memoirs and there's a huge amount of activity going on, he is not reading the British right, you know, on several occasions because he's not in the room with them. Um, and it's there's a gap there, there's a gap. And that's what I'm really trying to understand, that gap. And of course what happens in 1937 after Lewis Andrews is assassinated in the Galilee in September and the revolt breaks out again and you have the Blue Dam conference, which is this wonderful Arab nationalist conference yeah the Palestinians moved completely, almost completely away from any attempt to follow in the footsteps of people like Musa Musa Qasim who had been negotiating hard and the early congresses who had really, those sources are, you can see the Palestinians just hitting the British with you know, how can you not give us our rights? And the British are dodging and weaving and lying and so I don't want to come away from this long <laughs> speech saying you know I think it all would have turned out differently had the Palestinians participated in the session I don't know that but they certainly if they'd been in the secret sessions it would have been harder for the British if they'd been in the secret sessions saying absolutely no way are we gonna to agree to partition it would have been harder for Copeland to take it to the Secretary of State for the colonies Um, and say I vetted it and there are these nice moderate moderate Arabs who seem very sympathetic Um, it was easy I guess what I'm really saying is it was it was made easier for the Zionists to just roll on keep doing it keep building um whether it could have been stopped probably the answer is no but I'm not absolutely sure of that. But this
1: is still the strategy of the use of the now They are still rolling over now
0: yes. in the United States of America. I know, and they're still rolling on. Every time I come, I see the relentless roll just in the geography. I mean, I know I, I'm an outsider, I don't need to tell anyone that here, but, I, and I, and, but working on this period, I, and Keith Roach's statement of we, you just have to roll on I, that rolling on is, and I. I'm, yeah. Do you want to? I should now. I should other? go to um, yeah to Sami's question, which is an excellent question about is that that was uh, a. And
2: you had you had a previous question
0: on the. Yes, I ha- I'm getting to that. I've got that at the end. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Sami? I mean, I, I think the British were. I think, and again, this is a, in a way counters you know is the other side of my argument of the argument I was just making to Saleh You know the revolt Did shake the British up because they had to spend so much money on it. They had to bring in 20,000 troops To crush the revolt. It was a huge um, Commitment of resources at a time when they couldn't afford it There was a financial crisis in Britain the British public was very much against British military involvement in Palestine I think the British you know they wanted to get out and I think you know some of the more pro-Arab British officials people like Arthur Wockup Keith Roach himself these are not pro-Palestinian in the sense that we think of it today they were British Imperial officials but they would have preferred to hand it over to the Palestinians given you know the choice Um, and I think that the partition plan um, for them was became something that was totally unworkable, given the scale of the revolt. so that's an argument for armed resistance. you know in fact, is it the revolt that was the only thing that in fact swayed the British to recommend the white paper? Um, of course, the Indians did both right they had they had um, but they didn't have a they didn't have a white settler colony mm-hmm. to deal with in addition to British imperial power. But right. exactly. Yeah, and that is a massive difference. And I often say that to my friends who drive me mad by saying, "Well, look what the Indians did." I always say, "But they weren't dealing with a white settler colony um, right in their midst." To the last question, why did the British have to go to the Zionists? I think the story of World War One is a very um, big story. I was at an exhibit in Paris a few days ago about the post-Versailles um, peace treaties. The great powers, the French and the British, were making promises to so many people. I mean, I was really struck in this exhibit, to the, to the Hungarians, to the Czechs, to the Poles. Um, And I think sometimes in Palestine studies, and I'm very much like this, I'm so focused on Palestine, I never step back. Um, This was just another promise. The Zionists were promising things. They were saying that they would get America on board. They were saying that they would try to persuade the revolutionary government in Russia not to leave the war and not to leave the alliance with Britain. There were people within the British establishment who were pro-Zionist and pushing the Zionists from within. So they signed that piece of paper. But they also signed a bunch of other agreements. I'm sorry to reduce it, because I know the effects have been so cataclysmic, but it's, um, one of many. it's one of many.
4: But it was included
0: in the mandate. It was. That was Weitzman. Weitzman insisted. There's a great article by Sahanedi um, on the Balfour Declaration, and also a recent one by James Renton which is a really good article showing exactly how Weizmann insisted that the Balfour Declaration be included in the terms of the mandate. That document, the terms of the mandate, I don't know how... If you read that document carefully, all 28 articles, it is shocking. Yeah. It is a shocking legal document. Don't <laughs> I assign it in my classes so the students can see. All you have to do is assign it and they see it.
3: Uh so yeah, now I uh, uh, if I may I have the short comment and the question uh, the short comment is relevant to what uh, professor Saleh said uh I think the uh, there is a good term used by uh, Bahjat Qurni an Egyptian professor yeah uh, which is the word uh, intermystics so intermystics is about international domestic okay and you know and the con- connection between both when it comes to Palestine, as you rightly said, different than India, we have settler colonial project. Yes. So it's not only like you know British colonialism here. We have settler colonialism, mm-hmm. and settler colonialism was supported not only by the Jewish philanthropists, mm-hmm. um, but it, it was also by the Templars in Haifa. Yeah. Yeah. They are Germans. Yes. Uh, the Americans, the first American consul who came to Jerusalem uh, arrived at uh, Jaffa Airport with a dove in his. Uh, um, <laughs> Jaffa uh, uh, Yeah, uh, exactly. Airport. Seaport. 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 Sorry, Jaffa Seaport. Sure. So with a uh, dove in his, uh, uh, in his uh, shoulder, and uh, then he became a Jew. Later on, yes. And uh, when you go to Ertas, for instance, close to Bethlehem. It was one of these settlements that he created, or the Americans created at uh, so and so. And then you have the promise made by uh, by France, Mr. Cambon, yes, six months before Balfour Declaration. Yes. Then Balfour Declaration came, and you know all this story, all, all this article of uh, Herbert Samuel, 1915. Yes. And I will not go back to history. There are a lot of other historical evidence on yes. this that can be mentioned. But in any anyway, there's, this is the point. I think I made, I made the point. Yes. It's about intermystics
1: yeah. and how thank they you. played
3: a role in Palestine different than India or any other yeah. place in, in,
0: in Yeah, Europe. thank you. I will, I will look. My I actually don't know
3: that term. In, I will look it up. Yes, my question is about when I read the memoirs of Hussein. Yes. Uh, he has very important point that he mentioned about Arthur Wachov. Yes. Phil Arthur Wachov, they was speaking about uh, the British policy was about creating in, uh, a, a, a Jewish home in Palestine, Jewish national home. Yes. Uh, and then and also convincing the Palestinians to be part of it. Yes. And it seems he was, you know. Uh, he was convinced of that. He was convinced that this is possible. Yes. <laughs> you know, this was the possibility. Yes. The question: If you can elaborate more about the position of Harris. Yes. He was the good, the uh, biggest advocate of the issue of uh, partition. How comes that Harris was able to convince the Peel Commission of that? Yeah. And then to move from this idea of having social engineering of Palestine having been, being a country of both the Jews are the rulers and the Palestinians will yeah. be in another position. Yeah. Then you have now Harris is taking the British yes. position in another direction. How comes?
0: Yes. First of all, thank you very much for the reference. For I haven't read Hussein Fakhri al-Khalidi's memoirs yet on this topic and um, that's a very important source. Arthur Wokup was not a very clever man. He was not a... He was quite oddly sympathetic, but he didn't really understand Mm -hmm. what he was seeing. You can see that in the um, in the correspondence between him and um, the Secretary of State for the Colonies. I think it's important to understand that Harris is a cog in the machine. So, Copeland wants partition for his yeah. Copeland is a commissioner. He wants partition. He has a couple of allies, we all know, those of us who are university professors, we know how committees work, you know. um, We know that it's often down to the, you know, um, to the alliances between two or three people on a committee who are able to push something through. This commission is working in the same way. Copeland wants it, there's a couple of other people on the committee who want it. Harris is there to provide the evidence, Mm. the kind of meat that they need to push this forward. And Harris believes in it, along with Lewis Andrews, who was a very odious man. Um, So Lewis Andrews and Harris are both pushing it. I think Harris wants to impress his superiors. Um, The other thing you have to remember about British officials, they're only there for a short time. Harris is thinking about his promotion, when he's gonna be sent to India or sent to Kenya and people will say about him, you know, Harris did an excellent job in Palestine, you know, he really did the hard work, the legwork, for, um, for um, the, Peel part, you know, the Peel Commission and its partition. So he's a cog in this very complex structure, um, and he is helping to support a more driven agenda by a couple of commissioners. And then there are commissioners who are against it, but they're weak. And they can't be bothered. One of them is retiring. He writes a letter to his son and he says, this Copeland's an absolute bastard. He's pushing this thing. I don't agree with it. Um, But there's not much I can do. He's got a couple of people on his side. And then he goes on to talk about personal things and how much he's looking forward to coming back to England and celebrating his grandchild's birthday. And, you know, it's it's all part of a day's work for the British. It's all in the 9 to 5. There's something really chilling about it. Mm. It's the banality of evil in in some ways, although it's not an exact parallel. You had your hand up. Yes. Yes. uh, Thank you. Um, I'm Deli Habash and I'm a researcher. I was wondering if you found in in the documents any exact details about the boundaries of the partition. This is something that I... uh, and, and the proposals back and then, the and how they are, yes. Yes. But it's extremely important. Yes. You find in a lot of researches, like the reference of the Peel Commission, and like you yes. can talk to officials, and within the conspiracy theory, yes.
1: reality, they say. So I wanted to see where yes. they were exactly.
0: The boundaries are really yes. important. And, so uh, the, the report itself has a map, the report that comes out in July 1937. That map is the result of endless negotiations in London between April and July of 1937. And the Jewish agency, who by this time have understood that the British are probably going to recommend partition and that they'd better get on board if they're going to have in- influence on the map, mm. are meeting relentlessly. And I'll tell you something really interesting about the map, which I discovered in a talk by Frederick Meaton in. Uh, University of Massachusetts, uh, Univers- UMass Amherst, a few weeks ago. It almost exactly maps onto the electricity grid by Pinchas Rutenberg. Mm. And in Rutenberg's papers, he has a precursor of the partition map that, where you can see that he's marking it according to the electricity grid. He is trying to make sure that the Jewish state has the electricity grid in it. So there's a way in which the development, this is why this new work on development by Jacob Norris and by Frederick Meaton, who's just published a book on the electricity grid. It's a, it's a fascinating book. Mm. The development is determining mm. it, the boundaries. And the Jewish agency ends up with a very sympathetic map including the Hule Valley, which they fight for. And they fight for it on the basis of the fact that they say they've developed it. Yes. And so, in fact, they end up with much more than the original maps of April um, because they've been... But also, army officers are consulted. You know, British Army... Lots of people yeah. are weighing in. It's a, it's a negotiation. Mm-hmm. Thank you, well, thank you okay. very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments.